What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to take a crack at that question, hopefully get it answered on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you're listening to us today on the radio or online, 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. If you're listening to us in, um, oh golly, Mongolia, you you pick the country. We're all over the world. Here's a phone number for those of you not listening in North America: two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. The uh, U.S. country code is one, and then two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And if you're watching us on TV today, the best way to contact the show is through email. And that would be ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. And if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that, and he'll shoot it to us. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I am well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you so much. Interesting objection that we received to the Catholic faith from Joseph. Joseph says, what do the early church fathers believe about the perspicuity of Scripture? What a great word. Uh, And what is the Catholic position on it today? I saw a confessional Lutheran pastor argue that the Roman Catholic apologetic asserts that Scripture is obscure and unable to establish the truth. Furthermore, he adds that the idea of a, quote, living voice of authority to clarify Scripture's meaning is influenced by Gnostic belief. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So the the classical position, the Church Father's position on the perspicuity of Scripture, perspicuity here is a technical term from Protestant theology, and when Protestants use it, what they mean by it is that the, the, the scriptures are sufficiently clear that a person could read them and come to an understanding of everything they needed to know about how, how to get to heaven, basically. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, and, and along with that, it usually implied the idea that the Bible is the rule of faith that God gave the church, that if you, know, if you want to know something about the Christian faith or Christian morality, that the Bible's the place to go to get it. And so that's kind of all kind of a package in the Protestant idea of perspicuity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholic position... Uh, it's best articulated, I think, by the church, uh, ancient Christian writer Origen of Alexandria, who was a, a, a third century a writer, second, late century, late second century, early third century. And I'm actually quoting from Origen right now. I'm going to read a passage from Origen. Um, uh, Origen, in his book on first principles, lists the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith: He's, the existence of God, the divinity of Christ, the atoning death for our sins, the incarnation, the founding of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and then, he lists this as an article of faith that all Christians must hold. Then, the belief that the scriptures were written by the Spirit of God and have a meaning, have a meaning, not such only as is apparent at first sight, but also another which escapes the notice of most. Hmm. For those words which are written are the forms of certain mysteries and the images of divine things. 
respecting which there is one opinion throughout the whole church, namely that the law is spiritual and that the spiritual meaning which the law conveys is not known to all, but to those only on whom the grace of the Holy Spirit is bestowed in the word of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I'm going to paraphrase that. What Origen says is, taking Scripture at face value does not give you the true meaning or significance of the Bible. You, you just can't pick up the Bible and read the, the sentences in their, in their straightforward, denotative sense and think that you have plumbed the depths of the Bible, that there is another sense of Scripture. Now the Catholic Church calls it the spiritual sense that transcends the literal, and that's where the, the major action happens, is at the level of the spiritual meaning of the text. Now, this doctrine is not something the Church Fathers invented. It's something that they learned from St. Paul in the Bible itself. If you look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, he argues exactly this, that the plain meaning of Scripture is not sufficient, and that there's another sense that's only available to those that have the Spirit of God. All right? That was the passage of St. Paul that was quoted most often by the ancient Christian fathers. If you, if you look at the passages of Paul's letters and say, which ones did the fathers quote the most, say, before the 4th century? It was 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? This idea that there's a spiritual sense of the text. That is the contemporary Catholic doctrine on the Bible. Now, um, if, you, if you want to know what modern Catholic writers have to say, um, let me turn to uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who became... Benedict XVI, mm -hmm. when he was pope, he promulgated an apostolic exhortation called Verbum Domini, of the Word of the Lord, in which we read concerning the difficult passages of the Old Testament. He says, quote, We should be aware that the correct interpretation of these passages requires a degree of expertise acquired through training that interprets the texts in their historical literary context and within the Christian perspective, that would be the spiritual sense, uh -huh. which has as, at its, as its ultimate hermeneutical key the gospel and the new commandment of Jesus Christ brought about by the Paschal mystery. So again, to unpack, the Pope says in fancy technical language that taking the Bible in a straightforwardly literal way, reading the sentences in their plain denotative sense, the way the man on the street might read them, mm -hmm. is not sufficient to plumb the depths of the mystery of sacred scripture, but it requires both technical expertise and adherence to the mind of the, the church and the and the and the rule of faith handed down from Christ through the centuries by oral tradition. And so, uh, absolutely, I would agree with the Lutheran pastor who makes the charge that the Catholic Church does not teach the perspicuity of the Bible as understood by Lutherans. That would be absolutely true. The Bible is not perspicuous in the way in which Lutherans assert. And, and uh, the, this is not a problem for us. This is a great blessing to us. Because when you take the Protestant doctrine of perspicuity, mm -hmm. particularly in a sort of uh, egalitarian uh, democratic sense that any Tom, Dick, or Harry can pick up the Bible and understand it, what you end up with is fanaticism and, and radical internal disagreement. So the witness of 50,000 different Protestant denominations that can't agree on the plain sense of Scripture— mm. And people using the Bible, twisting the Bible like a, na a uh, like a nose of wax to make it say whatever they want to say and persuade people that it's that it's plain meaning has led to 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 ruin, anarchy, war, violence, prejudice, bigotry, slavery, you name it. Joseph, thanks so much uh, for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones. We'll begin with Mark in Omaha, also Vivian in Columbia, South Carolina. Two more lines in progress, and uh, there's a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for a call to communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin now with Mark in Omaha, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. So <clears throat> just had a question um, regarding my son was at a band concert this weekend, happened to be in a Lutheran church, and I noticed that there was a red tabernacle candle in the sanctuary, and I was really confused. I'm a Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So rem- remember that Lutherans believe in the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that is a that is a cardinal doctrine of the Lutheran communion. And, and Martin Luther, in fact, was so insistent upon the doctrine of the real presence that he refused to have fellowship with Protestants that denied that doctrine. So hmm. famously, at the Marburg Colloquy in 1528, Luther had a meeting with the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, and they agreed on many things, many things they agreed on. And the, the purpose of the colloquy was to see if they could make common cause with one another against their common enemy, the Roman Catholic Church, and the princes and aristocrats that were allied to the mm. Church. And when it came to this matter of the Eucharist, um, Luther famously had written the words, Hocast corpus meum, this is my body, uh, on the table where they were having the meeting and covered them with a cloth in anticipation of this moment. And when they arrived at that point in the conversation, Luther rips the cloth off of the table and points to the words on the on the table, Hocast corpus meum, and declares, this is what Scripture says, this is what the Lord has taught, and here I stand, and I will do no other. And he refused to make common calls with Zwingli. And in fact, he considered Zwingli to be outside of redemption. Uh, he thought he was, uh, he said of, of this meeting that one of us is with God, and the other one of us is with the devil. And he, of course, uh, included <laughs> Zwingli as the one that was with the devil, because of this doctrine of the real presence of Christ mm. in the Eucharist. So Lutherans adamantly, adamantly confess that doctrine. Um, in some Lutheran churches, the presence of a tabernacle lamp is very much testament to their belief that they possess the real presence in their in their tabernacle. Uh, there are other Lutheran churches, uh, typically more modernist in sentiment, that may give other explanations for the presence of the tabernacle mm-hmm. lamp, but the tradition of having one, of course, goes back to the Catholic origins of the Protestant Reformation. Yes, I'll say that again, the Catholic origins of the Protestant Reformation, because these guys were all Catholics before they became sure. Protestants. Um, now, from a Catholic point of view, what do we do with that? Well, we say, how nice that they believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, too bad they don't have it. Ooh. Right? Because in Catholic doctrine, to have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you must have a validly ordained priest to consecrate the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And Lutherans, of course, do not have uh, valid orders. In fact, they deny that orders is a sacrament. Right? Yeah. That's one of the things that in the in the in his 1520 treatise, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, one of the things that Luther invaded against was the Catholic doctrine of ordination. And so they vitiated Luther, though himself a validly ordained priest in the Catholic Church, Vitiated the opportunity to have validly ordained clergy in his own communion and with apostolic succession. And so they do not, in fact, have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, though they confess it. Okay. Mark, is that helpful for you, sir? Well, it is. I just have one quick follow up, and that is so do they believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation? Uh-huh. They do not believe in transubstantiation. Uh, the, the word that's often associated with the Lutheran doctrine is consubstantiation. Um, not transubstantiation, but uh, so keep in mind what the differences are. Uh, transubstantiation is the Catholic doctrine that the bread and wine cease to exist as bread and wine, and that the substance of the bread and wine becomes the substance of Christ's body and blood, though the appearances of bread and wine remain. The Lutheran position is that the bread remains, 
but is now accompanied by the real presence of Christ present in some mysterious fashion, so that you have you have both, and, and you don't have, you have bread and wine and Jesus, right? Always the Catholic position is you you don't have bread and wine. You have what looks like bread and wine. It's not bread and wine. Um, the Calvinists also believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but they split the difference between the Lutherans and the Zwinglians, and so they maintain that Christ is truly present, substantially present, but his presence is not local. It's communicated through some mysterious agency of the Spirit. So it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around the yeah. Calvinist position, but it's an attempt to mediate between Luther and Zwingli. Mark, thanks so much uh, for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Or if you're watching us on TV today, uh, please shoot us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. The address, ctc at ewtn.com. Here now, Kent in Champaign, Illinois, listening online, ewtn.com. Hey, Kent, what's on your mind today, sir? Good morning, or afternoon, I guess it actually is. Uh, Would it not be better to describe... Oh, first I'll say that I am a 75-year-old retired cradle Catholic. And would it not be better to describe uh, purgatory as a place of healing rather than as a place of punishment, which I think makes God sound vindictive? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, uh, So... That was—I I understand your point. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in it. Um, and, you know, in our dialogues with the Orthodox, for example, uh-huh. Catholic dogs with the Orthodox, Orthodox will sometimes get really frustrated about the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and adamantly declare that they disbelieve in purgatory. While they do believe that there is an intermediate state between this life and the life of heaven, and that the faithful in that intermediate state benefit from the prayers of those of us on earth— and that they undergo various tests and trials on their way to the next life. And so, you know, a Catholic could be forgiven for sitting back and scratching his his head a little bit and saying, but I thought you said you didn't believe in purgatory, <laughs> right? When so there's so much, uh, at least on the surface, commonality between Orthodox belief and practice and what Catholics confess. I think one of the major issues for the Orthodox is precisely this judicial metaphor of satisfaction, merit, demerit, and punishment. That is that is freighted into the Catholic understanding uh, that they that they take issue with. Um, I think if you it is possible to frame it in another way. Um, now, to be fair, the 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 concept of punishment or poina in Latin has a slightly broader meaning than we're associated with. We associated that we're familiar with in the English language. So we typically think of punishment as only a kind of retributive. Um, uh, action carried out by a judicial authority. Um, there's a place in St. Thomas, and I can't give you the, the the location of the quote right now, where he talks about the death of Christ as punishment, but he describes what he means when he says, in this way, he's talking about the Latin language, we also describe medicine as punishment. And it's clear from the context what he means is that poina in Latin, at least in Thomas's day, could mean um, any unpleasant thing that you have to undergo. Hmm. And in that context, when he talks about the atonement, Thomas clearly doesn't understand the death of Christ as as judicial punishments meted out by God against the Son for sins he didn't commit. He means rather something unpleasant that Christ has to undergo. And so I think what I'm, my point is is that even within the Latin tradition, 
there's a there's a range of possibilities to how we understand the word punishment that could decouple it a little bit from that sense of vindictiveness that, that you find difficult and offensive. Sure. Um, you know, another a Protestant writer who who seemed to embrace this kind of notion was C.S. Lewis. And if you have ever read his novel, um, The Great Divorce, which I highly recommend, highly recommend, you'll see it's not a Catholic vision of purgatory, but it is, in fact, a, a very delightful Protestant image of what a purgatory might look like that a Protestant could could uh, could uh, find palatable. Interesting. Uh, Kent, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. We do have a couple of lines open. If you uh, have a question for Dr. David Andrews about the Catholic faith, maybe you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. Or if you're watching on TV, send us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Chuck is in Wayne, Michigan, watching us on EWTN television today. Chuck, what's on your mind, sir? Uh, Chuck? Yes. Hey, Chuck, go ahead. Uh, hello. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Uh, yeah, I uh, stated that, you know, we realized that Jesus was born divine without a father, but the Scripture declares all have sinned, come short of the glory of God, meaning all human beings have sinned, and that includes Mary. And it also says... Uh, for there's no none righteous, not even Mary. And uh, the Gospels record that Jesus had four brothers and sisters. And I'm just uh, perplexed at that. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So, with respect to the doctrine of uh, the, the the universal extent of sin, it's interesting that there are passages of the Bible that seem to directly contradict that remark, like the first chapter of the book of Job, where we read in chapter uh, one, verse one, that Job was blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. Yes. No blame attaching to the person of Job. Mm-hmm. And so you, you say, well, okay, how do I bring these two things? How, how can I reconcile these two statements? One that says that every, everyone has sinned, and here's one that makes the claim that someone has is absolutely blameless, right? Well, you, ha- you, you obviously have to have some hermeneutical principle. And in this case, the, when we make the statement that everyone has done such and such, should we take that to be an absolutely literal description of the extent of, of, uh, of sin and throughout per- pervading all of humanity? Or could we take it in the sense that you might make, well, you said, um, uh, you know, this is the, the best restaurant in town. Everyone goes there. Well, you know, from context, you know, literally not everyone goes there. It's an, it's an expression that means, you know, a heck of a lot of people go there, right? And, uh, and it clearly you don't include the person of Jesus in the description, all have sinned. But Jesus is a human being. He's a divine human, yep. but he's a human being. Mm-hmm. It, it clearly, you don't mean to include that. So there are definitely exceptions to this to this uh, text, which is meant to suggest something other than— the, the verse is really not about the extent of, the, uh, of original sin throughout the world. It's really about th- our need for a Redeemer, our inability to save ourselves through the works of the law. I mean, if you read it within the context of Paul's letter, it's pretty clear what he's trying to indicate. It's not, a, not to initiate a debate on the extent of original sin. And, of course, the Catholic doctrine on Mary is that she also was saved by Christ's mediation, that, she is, that the grace that preserved her from the stain of original sin was won for her by the redemption that her son wrought upon Calvary. So he, she's saved like the rest of us by Jesus, but in a more imminent way. Um, anyway, with respect to the question of Mary's uh, alleged other children, 
I, again, the scriptures are very clear here that the, that the siblings of Christ that are mentioned in sacred scripture, in particular James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and we read about them in Matthew chapter 13, are in fact the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, and not the children of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, it's, it's very plain in the Bible that that's the case. And mm-hmm. so Mary, the wife of Clopas, was the cousin of the Blessed Virgin. Therefore, these individuals are Jesus's cousins and not his biological siblings. So uh, there's not one text of Scripture that says that the Blessed Virgin Mary had children other than Jesus. There's not one. Okay. That's where it is. Uh, Chuck, thanks so much uh, for your call today, call to communion here on EWTN. We do have one line open right now. If you'd like to grab it, it is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ron is a first-time caller in Montague, Michigan, also watching us today on EWTN television. Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? I'd like to know uh, what the Catholic Church's teaching is on the rapture. The Protestants teach it all the time, but I never hear any Catholics teach anything about the rapture. Yes, that would be because there's no rapture, and so there's no need to teach a doctrine about something that doesn't exist and won't exist. Um, now, uh, there's a passage of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul mentions that those of us who are alive at the Lord's return will be caught up uh, into the air with Jesus and be with him forever. And so if you want to call that a rapture, then we could say that's the Catholic rapture, namely that we'll be here, those of us who are around at the end of days when Jesus comes back in glory will in fact be caught up with him in the air. Now, but that's not what Protestants mean by the doctrine. They mean a lot more than that. The Protestant idea of the rapture is that there are in fact three comings of Christ and not two. Catholic belief is that he came, of course, in the incarnation and he'll come again at the end of time. The Protestant belief is that he sneaks in someplace in the middle, and, and he zaps out, quote-unquote, true believers and leaves the rest of the world behind. And they twist the Bible to arrive at that interpretation from passages like Matthew 24, when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah, you know, when two men were working in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. And so they, they imagine this doctrine that, uh, that the, the righteous will be taken away and the wicked will be left behind. It's part of the Protestant understanding. Again, not attending to the context where Jesus says the exact opposite that it is the righteous who will be left behind and the wicked taken away. And the taking away here is the taking away in this in this tribulation and judgment that God will pour out on the world, not a situation where the church is taken out of the space-time continuum. Um, uh, there are other principles behind the Protestant doctrine about Old Testament interpretation, uh, you know, biblical hermeneutics, eschatology, prophecy, and so forth. But, but, um, but in terms of the explicit teaching of the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible about this Protestant doctrine of the rapture. It's a fabrication made up by John Nelson Darby in the 19th century. Um, interestingly, early Protestants did not believe it. They'd never heard of it. So Martin Luther never heard of any rapture. John Calvin never heard of any rapture. John Wesley didn't know anything about any rapture. Jonathan Edwards knew nothing about the rapture. It was something that we didn't even emerge on the Protestant scene until the 19th century. So it hardly has the claim to be the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Very good. And Ron, thanks so much for your call today from Montague, Michigan. Marion in Mobile, Alabama, listening to us on Archangel Radio, asks, Dr. Anders, if the substance changes during the consecration, could someone still get a little buzzed with an excess of the precious blood? Absolutely. In fact, if the if after the consecration or what appeared to be a consecration, uh-huh. if what remained did not have the appearance and taste and feel of alcohol, then we would conclude that it wasn't actually the body of Christ, hmm. right? And so in, in order to be the true Eucharist, um, here's how you'll know for a fact if it's the true Eucharist. Here's a, here is a sine qua non, I should say. Without this, you have no Eucharist. Uh-huh. If, the, if the elements don't have 
the properties of bread and wine, then it's not Jesus, mm. right? But this is because, for the, according to the church, to have a valid consecration, you have to have valid matter. Like if I, uh, if, a, if an ordained priest said the words of consecration over a styrofoam cup filled with uh, Bud Light, for example, <laughs> nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. You can't consecrate just any matter. It has to be wine, alcoholic wine from grapes and wheat and bread. Only those elements can be validly consecrated. And when they are consecrated, all the properties of bread and wine remain. Only the substance has changed. All right. And uh, Marion, thanks for listening to us on Archangel Radio. Back in just a moment. And it uh, looks like one line open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. A couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Steve now in Spokane, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey there, Steve. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hi. Thank you. So I went to uh, confession to a to a new priest, or a priest that I hadn't gone to before, uh-huh. and he, uh, throughout the confession, he asked me, well, the, are you sorry for your sins? And of course I said, yes, that's why I'm here. And then he asked me, do you believe that Jesus forgives? And I said, of course, yes. And then, so after I confessed my sins, he said, okay, make your act of contrition. Now, I was behind the screen, but I could hear him clearly. So I said my act of contrition out loud to him, and then he just simply ended the confession by saying, your sins are forgiven, you go in peace. And I'm, I'm so used to, and I like to hear what the Catechism says, um, the, the prayer that they say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I absolve you from your sins. Is that a required prayer? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, he must say, for it to be a valid absolution, he must say, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He must say that. Now, the, the formula for absolution in the Latin rite is longer than that, and it begins with the phrase, God, the Father of mercy, sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the ministry of church, may God grant you in peace, grant you pardon and peace. And then here comes the, the money quote, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If he doesn't say those words, it's not a valid absolution. So um, a couple questions remain. Number one, why on earth would he do this? Uh, number two, what do you do about it? Um, for some reason that is inscrutable to me, uh, there are priests who think that if they monkey with the language of the sacraments, that they somehow make themselves or their ministry more I don't know, quote-unquote, relevant. And uh, it, is a, it is a hubristic, narcissistic, egotistical uh, absurdity for them to declare this, because as the faithful all know, rather than bringing peace to souls, it troubles consciences, right? And so yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a pastoral abuse. It is a gross pastoral abuse for them to take this kind of uh, prerogative into their own hands that the church does not give them, and it helps no one at all. No matter how relevant or contemporary they think they may be, they are in fact just troubling consciences and damaging souls, so they should never do this. Um, uh, it is possible, it's always possible, that the priest himself um, is innocent of any ill will. Perhaps he was really badly formed in seminary. I don't know where he did his training. Perhaps he was badly taught. 
um, in which if, if he's a brand new, you said he's recently ordained, maybe he hasn't learned better and someone needs to gently correct him. Um, uh, if he, I think you said he's a new priest, so the odds are he's not the pastor of the parish. Um, and so that would be a logical place to start. I mean, it'd be worth mentioning to the pastor of the parish, yeah. I was not validly absolved in the confessional, and this is what Father said, and I know he's not supposed to say that. Um, and uh, if, the, if, the, if the pastor says, you know, I'll make sure that that's fixed and it gets fixed, then you're fine. If you go to the same guy for confession again, it happens again, and you've already told the pastor, then it's time to go to the bishop. Yeah, very good. And uh, Steve, thanks so much for your call today from Spokane, listening uh, there in, um, on the Great Sacred Heart Radio. All right, it's called to communion here on EWTN. Here's an email that we received from Maddie. Maddie says, I wanted to know how Dr. Andrews would discuss the Catholic faith with someone who is a moral relativist. How would you do that? Um, sure, yeah, I appreciate the question. So I would ask the moral relativist uh, if, if he or she believes that uh, there is, let's see, how should I put this? Um, if there are, are, are objective acts, objective conditions that uh, can lead to human flourishing in any domain. So, for example, um, is it in my best interest to to routinely consume large quantities of cyanide, <laughs> right? Or you know, or is that a question like that is is just totally relative, and and there could be any number of cultural or or biological contexts in which the routine consumption of large quantities of cyanide would be in humanity's best interest. Or you, you could substitute with whatever absurdity you would like. I mean. You know, should I should I should I try cliff jumping? You know, without a parachute. Uh, you know, how about how about uh, you know re- removing my eyeballs with a power drill? I mean, you just come up with whatever you want to come up with, and I mean, pretty pretty soon you're going to run up against some kind of re- recognition or, or or admission that no, there, there's something that it is for the human organism to flourish, and there may be some variations, but there's more or less an objective set of properties and conditions that are necessary for human flourishing. And the Catholic understanding of morality is simply that at the at the level of human uh, individual and social behavior, that there are practices and dispositions that tend to human flourishing and those that are destructive. And the moral imperative is nothing other than uh, the, the 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 natural law, the natural impulse that we that we seek the good of the organism rather than its ill. And that, that's where we derive Christian morality from, right? Sure. We, we don't, we don't, we're not divine command theorists. There are Protestants, there are Christians that believe that the only thing that makes an action right or wrong is that God has commanded it. That's not the Catholic position at all. We think God commands it because it tends to human flourishing. Mm. And so you can, you can have rational knowledge of morality without knowledge of the divine command. Uh, if you have, uh, uh, if you have access to the objective data and you have access to your reason, you can, you can know things about human flourishing rationally, which is why we find so much in common in the moral systems of great civilizations around the world. I mean, I don't know of any civilization that thinks that cowardice is a good idea, right? And it systematically seeks to inculcate cowardice. Um, or, or that the habitual practice of lying to one's close friends and relatives, for example, right? Um, uh, that, uh, that sexual infidelity to one's spouse is the way to achieve happiness in marriage. I mean, these, these kinds of principles are more or less universally understood around the world. There are variations in moral systems, but um, some of the fundamental questions uh, tend to get answered the same way wherever you go. And that speaks to the fact that we have a common humanity, we have a common nature, 
And so the elements of the natural law or, 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 or the Dharma if you're Indian or the Tao if you're Chinese tend to coalesce around the same set of moral principles. All right. And uh, Maddie, thanks so much for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Back to the phones now. Here is Wayne, a first-time caller in Illinois, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey there, uh, Dwayne. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I'm considering uh, marrying a woman that's in the Russian Orthodox Church, and I was raised Southern Baptist, and I was wondering, you know, kind of what the where the hang-ups are going to be. She wants me to uh, obviously join her faith. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'm having a little bit of an issue with, if, and maybe I'm just ignorant, like if you pray to the saints, St. Mary or whatever, you know, that's to me that don't seem right because, you know, you should only pray to God and man has failed. And so I'm kind of kind of looking for some advice on that. Yeah, sure, Dwayne. I really appreciate the question. So let me deal with the saint issue first, the prayer issue, and then we'll talk more broadly about Southern Baptists and, and, um, and Russian Orthodox. So when it comes to the issue of praying to saints— um, you're Southern Baptist. I assume in the church that you grew up in, you probably had a habit of asking some of your fellow Southern Baptists to pray for you. Uh, would I be correct about that? Did, sure. That you, sure. You, okay, sure. sure. All right. So I'm a Catholic. I'm not Orthodox. But the Catholics and Orthodox have this in common, that we think that you should keep doing that even when people die. Right? And so the way we understand prayer to the saints, it's no different than if I called you up and said, hey, Dwayne, would you pray for me? You know, I got a big test coming up, or I got a surgery coming up, or I got this particular need. Please pray for me. That's what we do with the saints. So what we're, we don't at all conceive of ourselves as worshiping the saints. We're not no. worshiping them at the slightest. We, we are asking for their prayers and intercessions. Now, the Bible suggests that that's exactly what's going on in heaven. If you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, for example, you'll see that uh, the apostle writes that the saints in heaven— offer our prayers to God as incense before the throne of the Lord. They're, they're, in fact, involved in an intercessory relationship between us and God, offering our prayers up to, to God, right? So that's, that's what they're doing while they're up there. And, of course, if you, if you deny that, if you, if you suggest that, you know, somehow they're indifferent to us or, or that God is not capable of making our prayers known to them, um, then you're asserting things that Scripture never says— and would seem to give you a kind of sterile idea of the afterlife, namely that, I mean, what kind of love would it be in the Christian faith if we suddenly stopped caring about our loved ones once we died? No, no, that's, that's nothing in Scripture that suggests that. No, we're perfected in charity when we die. The saints are just as much members of the Church as we are. We're, we're, in the Catholic community, we talk about people who are in the Church triumphant, those that are they're part of the Church but they've run the race, as it were, and then there are those of us that are in the church militant, where we're still running the race. So, you know, think about, put in the race metaphor. You, you go to a cross-country meet, and, and your team is running, and maybe you're one of the lucky ones, and you cross the finish line first, but you got 15 of your teammates that are still behind you. What do you do? You walk away and say, to heck with them, or do you turn around and cheer them on? Right? Well, the book of Hebrews says that we have a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. Yeah. What do you think they're doing up there? Right? Of, course they're, of course they're in prayer, because they're in a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So they're praying for us. And if we ask God... For help through their intercession, not only are we we're not denigrating Christ in any shape, form, or fashion, we're actually making the death of Christ do what it was meant to do, which is to create this communion of love that we call the Church, right? So our prayers to the saints exemplify what the Christian faith is all about, namely this society of mutual prayer and intercession and charity and love that we call the body of Christ, right? So I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing 
that this lady does, and it, it has a very ancient history in Christianity. Uh, it goes back 2,000 years, uh, this business of praying to saints goes back to the very beginning. And in fact, it's so ancient and so widespread that if you study the first four centuries of the church, you'll find that you can't go anywhere in ancient Christianity. You can't go east, west, north, south. You can look in Egypt, you can look in Armenia, you can look in Byzantium, you can look in North Africa, you can look in Europe, uh, uh, you can look in, uh, in, in Chaldea, uh, you can go all the way to the borders of Western China. It doesn't matter where you go in ancient Christianity, and you will find this business of praying to saints and seeking their intercession. Uh, and there was never any disagreement about it, right? So uh, there was a father of the church named Jerome, he wrote in the 4th century, who, who he, somebody actually challenged him about this once, and he wrote a treatise against Vigilantius, that's the name of the treatise, and he says, does the bishop of Rome do wrong when he, when he seeks the intercession of Peter and Paul? And not the Bishop of Rome only, but all the bishops throughout the world? Well, literally, it was a ubiquitous practice. Now, there's almost nothing else in the Christian faith you can say that about, right? So let's say the Bible, right? The Baptists have the Bible. Can we say that there was never any disagreement in the history of Christianity about the contents of the Bible? <laughs> no, no, yeah. there were divergent canons of the Bible promulgated in the ancient world. How about the divinity of Christ? Was there ever controversy about that? Absolutely. There was a huge split in the fourth century about whether or not Jesus was divine. You name your Christian doctrine, there was a controversy about it. But this, everybody agreed. Everybody mm. agreed that, mm. you, that the saints in heaven pray for us. Why do you, Duane, feel uncomfortable about this? I'll tell you why. Because your Baptist tradition, which hails, of course, ultimately from the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the mind of Luther, Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, they invade against this practice. So the early reformers rejected a practice that at that point was 1,600 years old in the, in the church, and they handed that to you through their tradition. So you've inherited this prejudice from Protestant tradition, but not from Scripture, and certainly not from the ancient church. Um, now, in terms of what are the other kind of difficulties you might have dating a Russian Orthodox woman, so from my perspective as a Catholic, and of course Catholics and Orthodox are not the same, uh, but, but Catholics and Orthodox are closer to one another than either one of us is to the Baptist church. Right, And so, though, you know, I would invite you to consider the Catholic faith, I would still regard Russian Orthodoxy as a move in the right direction for you, basically because the, the Orthodox and the Catholics have a conception of church that's very different from, from Baptists. In particular, we think that Christ established the church with a particular governing structure through bishops, through the episcopacy, and that modern bishops— at least of the Orthodox and Catholic type, mm -hmm. can trace their ordination lineage all the way back to the apostles. It's what we call apostolic succession. And in virtue of that, they have real authority, right? And a, and a charism, a gift from the Holy Spirit, where they can teach and hand on the church, hand on the doctrine faithfully. Um, they can also ordain priests that have the power to affect the sacraments. And this is the major difference that you're going to notice in spirituality, that the Catholic and Orthodox alike center their Christian life around the sacraments. These are, these are signs and symbols instituted by Christ that unite us to him in a very special way and give us strength uh, to, uh, to live the Christian life with, with holiness and, and charity. So uh, uh, the biggest one, of course, is the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, which Catholics and Orthodox alike both believe is a real sharing and a real participation in the body of blood of Christ that was offered for us at Calvary. And, um, and so if you attend Orthodox worship, you'll notice that it's going to look very, very, very different from Baptist worship. Um, there will be a, a sermon, a homily, but whereas in the Baptist church, the focus of the whole thing tends to, tends to center in on that message, on that, on that homily, 
in the Orthodox communion as in the Catholic Church, the, 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 the homily, the sermon, is more a sort of prelude, a kind of warming up session for the real business of Christian worship, which is the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist, where we meet Christ himself present in the flesh, as it were, well, at least substantially the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion. There are many other differences as well, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's well worth your time to investigate that, well worth your time to investigate that. Yes, indeed. Uh, Dwayne, thanks so much for your call. If you want to review any of this, you can check out the podcast. We'll have that posted for you in the next couple of hours at EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the word podcast once you are there. All right, let's go to uh, Al now in Panama City, listening on iHeartRadio today. Hello, Al. What's on your mind, sir? Yes, good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, um, I was wondering if Dr. Anders could give me a layman's explanation of um, and it's for a fundamentalist slash dispensationalist of the 144,000 represented in Revelation. Yeah, sure. Well, 144,000 is obviously 12 times 12,000. That's where you get the number from. And, gee, I'm wondering if 12 has any significance <laughs> in Holy Scripture. <laughs> and, of course, it does, right? You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles, which are absolutely intended by Christ to be a kind of analog to the 12 tribes. Why does that make sense? Well, you remember when John the Baptist shows up on the banks of the River Jordan, and it's interesting that that's where he chooses to plant himself. And he says to the, uh, uh, to the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, don't say that you have Abraham for your father. Don't say that. Because God can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones, rather than bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he has people pass through the Jordan River through the sacrament of baptism. And, and the significance of that is that John is, as it were, reconstituting the people of God. And the Jordan there has a very symbolic significance, because it's crossing the Jordan that brought the exiles from Egypt into the Promised Land. And John seems to be saying, I'm going to reconstitute the people of God, not based on their ethnicity or biological or genealogical heritage, but through their commitment to the life of righteousness. Right? That's how we're going to constitute the people of God in anticipation of the coming kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, was associated with John's ministry. He was baptized by John. Uh, when John was put in prison, Jesus took over the mantle of the Baptist's movement and announced, a repent for the kingdom of God is here. And, and according to St. Paul, the significance of Christ's proclamation was that, specifically, that it is not just lineal descendants of Abraham that will inherit the kingdom of God. It's all those that do the will of God and are united to Christ through faith. And so... The, the, the scope of redemption uh, expands massively to include the entire world, Gentiles included. Paul says that is the mystery that was kept hidden from ages but now revealed to God's holy prophets and apostles, namely that the Gentiles are co-heirs together with Jesus. And Jesus talks about this in his own ministry. He tells parables about it. He says, many will come from the east and the west and, and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven, uh, but many of you who are here now will be cast out, right? Overturning those expectations— about who will or will not enjoy the, uh, uh, the, uh, the coming kingdom of God. And so this 144,000 is obviously a symbolic representation of this Catholic truth that, that to be a member of the covenant people of God is not something that's restricted to Abrahamic genealogical lineage, uh, but is open to all people of goodwill and faith who join themselves to Christ and live a righteous life. And so you have, you know, thousands, all the tongues and nations and kinds represented in the kingdom of God. It's not meant to be a literal description of, you know, you've got 144,000. Oh, sorry, you're 140,001. <laughs> so you have to go in line B. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay. Al, is that helpful for you, sir? 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott. All right. Thank you so much uh, for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. I'm going to go to St. Louis now and talk with Matthew, listening on the Great Covenant Radio. Matthew, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, hi. I just had a little uh, question about the proof of the transubstantiation of the spirit and the body and the flesh of Christ into the Eucharist by the Catholic uh, consecration, as opposed to, I was listening earlier, um, the consubstantiation of, or the uh, very difficult to understand metaphysical concept of the Calvinist, how it works. But the thing is, I think it's a little bit silly for this, uh, it's, 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 it's an empty intellectual argument to be argued about for centuries, unless there is a scientific experiment that can demonstrate the host, what is the molecular structure, what is the content, what is the caloric content of the host before it's consecrated. And if there's a molecular change um, in the host itself, otherwise, if there's no empirical, scientific, biological, DNA, molecular uh, study, then you can't just say, you can't say that the Catholics have the correct version of the physical dynamics that happen during so-called transubstantiation. Oh, yeah. I really appreciate the question. So I I would disagree uh, with one thing that you said, uh, and that is that unless you could show uh, an empirical change through some kind of scientific investigation, then then the doctrine becomes odious. Because, in fact, the Catholic position is that if you could show a molecular change— then you might have an interesting miracle, but it wouldn't be the miracle of the Eucharist. Hmm. Right? It is it is part and parcel of the Catholic doctrine that the change that takes place is invisible to empirical investigation. Uh, there's a beautiful hymn about the Eucharist by St. Thomas Aquinas called Adorote Devote, I Devoutly Adore You, Hidden Deity. And there's a line in the song, uh, sight, touch, and taste. So now we're talking I- empirical evidence here. Sight, touch, and taste all fail in their judgment of you. But hearing suffices firmly to believe. I believe that all the Son of God has spoken. There's nothing truer than the truth of his word. And so the idea here is the way you know the truth of the Eucharist is only by divine revelation. Only the word of Christ is our access to this sublime mystery. Nothing in the empirical uh, realm would indicate it to us. Um, and uh, and so you say, well, is, is it is it silly for Christians to have debated the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Well, the reason that such debates matter is because when they have arisen, they have usually arisen precisely over the nature of Christian worship. And so the one implication of the Catholic belief is that we can worship the Blessed Sacrament. We can worship the Blessed Sacrament. Devoutly, I adore you, right? That's the line of the hymn. Yeah. And the Protestant position has traditionally been that to adore the Blessed Sacrament is to commit a sacrilege, right? And they Mm. considered idolatry. Well, you know, how Christians worship is a matter of fundamental importance, not to the chemist, but to the Christian faithful. And so we'd be happy to not debate the issue, (laughs) right? But since Catholics have been put to death for worshiping the Eucharist, uh, uh, or ridiculed or, or held in contempt, mm-hmm. it is necessary for us to be very precise about what we believe. Now, we don't, we're not trying to compel anybody else to believe. 
but we're going to be very clear about what it is that we affirm and, sure. and justify our own internal decisions about how we are to worship God. Um, if others want to come along and join us, that's fine. If they don't, please don't put us to death for it. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, thanks so much for checking in from St. Louis. Question here now, an email from Jennifer who says, Why do Catholics oppose using artificial contraception, but instead approve of natural birth control? Yeah, thanks. Well, natural family planning. So uh, there is a big difference between contraception and natural family planning. Big difference. It is the difference between having sexual relations and not having sexual relations. That's big. And I I have heard people make the claim, well, you know, it's all the same thing. There's no difference between birth control and natural family planning. And and to which my response is, well, if there's no difference then you won't mind using natural family planning because it makes no difference. And they say, oh, no, 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 it makes a ton of difference. <laughs> right? It's a difference of lifestyle, right? Yeah. The lifestyle differences are substantial, are substantial, even if the end results may, may uh, tend to the same direction. Okay. Jennifer, thanks for your email. We'll close with this one from John, who says, John the Apostle quotes Jesus as saying, the Holy Spirit, that is counselor and spirit of the truth, proceeds from the Father. Why do we teach that he also proceeds from the Son? Because Jesus says that as well. Like you'll, find, you'll find both forms of procession in John's Gospel. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, Michael says, recently you talked about the concept of gradualism. Can you uh, talk a little more about gradualism in general? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. It's a beautiful Catholic doctrine. Here's gradualism. Let's say that a person is a habitual sinner, mm-hmm. and and you call them to repentance, or the church calls them to repentance, and uh, and they don't give up all of their bad habits and sins all at once, but say they give up one. Okay, you know, so may, maybe you've got a a, a mobster, and he uh, he doesn't he he gives up uh, he gives up prostitution but not extortion, right? Well, from the Catholic point of view, like he's still a sinner. But he's taking a step in the right direction. Making progress. He's making progress. Yeah. And we say some progress is better than none. Some progress. And so in, in, in a pastoral vein, the, the priest who's or the minister doesn't have to win the whole battle in a day. Mm-hmm. If he can help a penitent move one step at a time towards a more ordered life, it's worth taking the steps. And sometimes that's the only way you can proceed. The journey. Right. All right. And uh, thanks so much for your email. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. On the radio side of EWTN, we do this program five days a week, Monday through Friday, live for you at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.